0: Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you
1: um, didn't hear the exhortation during the announcements, I'll repeat it. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of worship the vision for the church in 2018 is we are seeking a personal and corporate renewal in our experience of joy in two things, the word of God and in his spirit. And the reason I enumerate them as two things, not that they are separated, but rather there are two primary modes in which we experience God on a personal level. We do not take sacraments. We do not take communion Individually. We do not baptize ourselves. Hopefully you didn't baptize yourself. But we do have the personal, individual responsibility daily, as you heard in the Sunday school hour, daily to encounter God in the Word and in my understanding of of how the spiritual disciplines work, prayer and worship. So for example, in our homes, we, uh, if we are doing family worship, we're doing a corporate, private activity apart from the life of the church as a whole, as a church body, but what we're doing in our homes is we're making our homes a small congregation to the Lord, a small tiny church in the midst of our family. Uh, and likewise with ourselves. Individually, we all have individual responsibility to approach God. This is why I'm emphasizing it as personal and corporate. Corporate revival cannot be sustained by anything other than a corresponding private personal revival in the spiritual disciplines. For a time, a congregation can carry aloft a number of people who are are not pursuing the Lord. But the goal of corporate renewal is also individual renewal. And the reason why I wanted to discuss this in the context of this psalm is because of what we're about to see in a few minutes, that this psalm has a uniquely individual flavor to it. And I want to address perhaps one other issue, not just the individualistic flavor, but also perhaps a perspective change or, or really an elevation of what we have been doing as a church for the last seven years as we've been looking for Christ in the Old Testament. And um, it is not, it's not a corrective, but rather it's a yes and, or a, an adding on to our mode of reading when it regards reading the passages of scripture. Looking for Christ And then asking ourselves, how do we use this scripture? So I want to look at four things today. I want to look first at the the shepherding love of Yahweh over David. And it'll be helpful to remember that David was himself a shepherd. Then we're going to look as David changes metaphors or changes word pictures from God being the shepherd to God being the gracious and protecting host the one who is creating a feast for David himself. And then I want to look at, for a, a good amount of time, I want to look at how do we use the scripture rightly? What is a righteous use of the means of God's grace in the scripture as it comes to us? And then finally, I want to look at what this passage says about Jesus Christ as our shepherd and our host. How he himself is in this psalm, and at the onset, I might be able to say, he's not where you think he is in this psalm. So often we read in a simplistic fashion, and even if we don't moralize, even if we don't take the word of God and then just turn it into a set of moral rules, which we have to fulfill, even if we are able to see Christ in the scriptures, often we substitute Christ in the place of the man or the human in the story. That's not, I think, a great way to read this psalm. And all of this is going to tie in with what was the Lord doing for us as his disciples, as his spiritual offspring, as he was going to the cross. That as we approach communion today, I hope by God's grace to demonstrate that what this psalm is doing, it's not just saying that the Lord is making a spiritual meal For David or protecting him in certain circumstances, but rather is creating bedrock for David and therefore for us in how we understand God's provision every single day. So with that being said, I want to look at the beginning of this psalm. In your scriptures, it is titled a Psalm of David and it is not versed as a Psalm of David. Verse one begins, the Lord is my shepherd. Nevertheless, this psalm has a uniquely personal character. Many of the psalms do concern David, or someone like David, a psalmist, who is addressing deep needs that he himself has personally. But even in those psalms, it almost always ends up in praise being demonstrated in the congregation, or good news being told to sinners and and. Oftentimes, after the psalm explains the mercy of God coming to David, it then responds or rebounds, or uh, excuse me, redounds into praise and and evangelism for the people of God. In this psalm, that doesn't happen. And what's interesting about that is there aren't very many places in the Scripture where this takes place. But I think it's important to understand. Now, immediately as we begin to work with this psalm, I'll just say from the onset, especially when we are more familiar with a passage, even when we know the passage by familiarity, we often have to do much more work with that passage than the obscure portions. Why is that? because we attach wrong understandings to the word of God that they then become ingrained in our experience and in our mind and we read a verse and we say yep I already know that verse I can quote it or I have it memorized in essence and so as we're hearing Psalm 23 every one of us who's been in the faith for more than a few years we've we've got this thing down don't we And yet it is often the case that we are missing completely major sections or major ideas that are right here in the text. And therefore it behooves us in our personal and corporate reading of the scripture that when we come to a passage that we already know quite well, that we have to do even more work and we ought to take the time to look more closely at the book. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Immediately, this psalm begins with a personal flavor. And yet, as we're going to see in the entire psalm, the psalm is not about David. It's about the Lord. The psalm begins and ends with an emphasis on the Lord. And in fact, all throughout the personal descriptions of God's individual faithfulness to David, all of them do not focus on David, but rather they focus on God. Throughout the Old Testament, as we've seen just in the last two or three weeks in the Psalms, Psalm 80, especially Psalm 103, or excuse me, 100 verse 3, many times God explains himself or describes himself as the shepherd of his people. We looked last week and the week prior at how God had been a faithful shepherd to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even though they were shepherds, he was shepherding them. Jacob, as he was about to pass the baton, as it were, he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. And so God himself is a shepherd of a shepherding nations, the people of Israel. As they go down into Egypt, Joseph tells them to tell Pharaoh, we are a shepherding people. So the identity of shepherds is uniquely connected to the people of Israel in their identity, their life, how they understand themselves. They think of themselves as a nomadic, wandering people who are themselves shepherds. And so when David is then being able, by God's grace, to say, the Lord is my shepherd, what he's doing is he's saying, even though we ourselves are a shepherding people, I need shepherding. It's not just a psalm which boasts of God's individual protection, but rather exalts in his individual protection. That is to say, David is not boasting in the fact that he has earned these things, but rather it's a song of thanksgiving and a song of trust in which in the light of a dark shadow, a deep valley of death, in that crisis, a song of thanksgiving breaks out. The reason why is David is so convinced of the Lord's faithfulness, not his own. David, in the light of the history of Israel, has the audacity to boast of individual protection. Now that may not sound strange, but when you hear psalm after psalm focusing on the corporate identity of God's people as he is the shepherd over the nation, it seems quite presumptuous, doesn't it, to then say, well, God may be protecting you all but he's really protecting me you see for david and for the writers of the scriptures it's never an either and uh, neither uh, either or it's always a both and and in fact david can only boast of god's individual protection because he is a part of the people and just to extend the metaphor sheep move in flocks i think it's interesting in english an individual sheep is part of the sheep so you have a mice, and then you have mice. You know that's one of those weird things in English where we have an individual description, a noun, that is also the common noun: A mouse to mice, right? Thank you, dear. No, that was very helpful. you have You have this example. You have an individual, and then you have a different name for a flock, right? But here we have an individual that's called. The same thing as the corporate group is called. They are all sheep and an individual sheep is a sheep and part of the sheep. The point is this, that in our American reading, we often do two things with this passage. We miss the danger of our culture and we simply just read this passage and absorb it and say, yep, this validates everything I think about my self-directed living. The other danger is becoming aware of American individualism and so overreacting to that error that we destroy the individual. This is a very important thing as we seek to attain maturity as Christians, is there are evils in the culture. And in responding to error, if we go 180 degrees opposite to that error, we don't get out of that ditch, we just get into another ditch on the other side of the road. And so to subject the individual to the corporation or to the larger body is to distort the way God made the world. There is a balance and a tension between the individual and the corporate. Okay, and so therefore we are do not simply receive this psalm in an American style and say, this affirms everything about my self-directed life, nor do we throw out this psalm and say, well, that's not really the main point. What's more important is I'm remembering God shepherds his people. You see, if we constantly do that with the scripture, we are disarming ourselves with the, fight, with the tools that we need to fight the very individual battle of private defeat of sin. You see, it's not enough to have a corporate resistance against the schemes of the enemy. We individually are responsible for defeating temptation by the word of God. So in responding to American individualism and overreacting, we disarm ourselves and we do not make a proper use of God's word. We must not destroy the importance of the individual believer. And this is rightly understood as God's word to individual Christians who are seeking to grow up with other Christians. Here in this psalm, David is not boasting of God's protection outside of his lordship, but rather he's boasting of God's protection in God's lordship. That is to say, for David, God's blessings and protections are not divorced, but are only found under his shepherding. God does not protect David outside of God's will. God protects David inside of God's will. In every case in this psalm, all of the I statements, all of the me statements are always filled with thanksgiving, praise, and a yielding reception of God's direction. That is to say, David is not boasting in his individual journey. He is rather boasting that God is the shepherd who always knows where I am. To declare the Lord as my shepherd, therefore, is to delight in his right and ability to lead me. And willing obedience to his leadership or to his direction is, therefore, a logical outworking of boasting in the Lord being my shepherd. You see, David does not have a vision here that he as an individual sheep is wandering wherever he wants, but rather, as we see in Revelation, that those who are virgins, spiritually pure, follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's what shepherds do, isn't it? They take their flock to particular places. So notice how David then immediately extols the Lord's direction over his life verse 2 He makes me He doesn't suggest Now by this I don't think David has this idea that as this little lamb I'm going to hold I'm going to buckle my unlock my knees in He makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside the still waters. Here there is no image of a stubborn mule or a bucking colt who doesn't want to receive its rider. Here is a tender lamb that at the very mere taking of the lamb to a place to lie down, it lies down. It rests. It drinks from still waters, not tumultuous waters, not waters which will sweep away the the sheep as it tries to draw near for a drink, but waters that are still and yet still flowing. You see, stagnant water is death. If you ever are in the wild and you are looking for water and you have two options, a stagnant pool and a fresh pool, just in case you are not aware, you choose the fresh pool unless you know that it's tainted. The reason why is because completely still water has, has the ground for bacteria and death and, and decay. The reason the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea is because water goes in and it never goes out. That's, that's why it's become so salty, is, is because water flows into it and then evaporates. There's no exit. These sorts of waters that David is boasting about or, or praising God for, these sort of waters are still enough to drink from, but full of life. They're restoring to his soul. David here describes God's provision in a very lofty metaphor, but then he moves from that metaphor of the shepherd and then gets to the marrow or the heart of the matter. Verse 3, he restores my soul. We don't often talk about the soul of sheep, right? So he was using a metaphor and now he moves to the heart of it. He restores my soul. David here is not just praising God for protection or food or drink. He is praising God for spiritual protection. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. While David may be obedient to God's leading, he can eat and drink all he wants, but he can't restore his soul. This is a very important thing to remember as we seek to be faithful in our spiritual disciplines. We chop the wood, he brings the fire. And it always is that way. We do what we can. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. It is up to us to do what we can to participate in God's grace in response to his promises, but we cannot cause the growth. We cannot restore our own souls. Jesus, in talking about anxiety, he said, how, how many of you, by, by worrying, can you even change one hair white or black? Some of us wish we could do that, don't we? How many of us can add one hour to our lives? None of us. Your heart beats involuntarily. For the most part, you breathe involuntarily. When you sleep, you are not in control of anything. This is the sort of posture that we as humans have been given. We are creatures. We are not God. And so as creatures, as sheep in God's pasture, we rejoice in his righteousness, his restoration of our souls, not for our own praise, not for our own blessing alone, but in what David says at the end of verse three, for his name's sake. While David is extremely thankful and is benefiting from God's individual care, he has a properly oriented eye to God is doing this for God's sake, not just mine. This is one of the ways that we defeat American individualism is we have a posture in which everything we receive from God, we receive with thanksgiving, not because we're blessed, but because he's glorifying his name on the earth and that we are just fruit. I know that's different than the metaphor we have today. We're not just sheep, we're also fruit. And God is demonstrating his masterful work as a gardener in bringing us to maturity. This psalm here then turns dramatically from a very gentle and pastoral theme, pastoral uh, in the classical sense of the word. Here, if you've ever been to Lakewood, uh, is it Lakewood Metro Park? What's the name of the park we go to? Eastwood, thank you. Eastwood Metro Park. There's this wonderful place at Eastwood Metro Park where there's this tiny little bridge and a very gentle stream going forward. Whenever I think of of pastoral settings, I think of this place. There's trees and there's just a quiet little pond that is not not really a pond, but a little stream that is moving quietly. And everything is very... Uh, tranquil and placid. There's no danger there. It's just a very soft place. And this psalm then completely turns from the Lord is my shepherd. I'm going to lie down in a green pasture. I'm going to go drink from still waters. He's restoring my soul. And then immediately I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. And I I think this is done by David because he is trying to explain that this is not the only way that God leads me as his sheep. He does not simply make everything perfect, in my sense of the word perfect, I go through troubling things. Before we look at this, I would like to examine just in brief detail, in quick detail, some of the life of David. It's important to understand sometimes, who our authors are of the scriptures, because it gives us context for what he's talking about. So remember, David is saying, as a testimony of his life, God leads me beside still waters. God leads me in paths of righteousness. God makes me lie down in green places. Everything looks really rosy. But remember what David's life was all about. After Saul, the king that preceded David, after Saul had rebelled against God. Samuel then is told by God, stop mourning Saul and go and anoint the king that I'm going to choose. He sends him to Jesse's house, David's father. And Jesse brings out six or seven, depending on how you read it, six or seven brothers. And he shows each brother to Samuel. And Samuel looks at them and God says, do not look as man looks, for God looks at the heart. That's, that, that's where that famous quote in Christianity comes from. God looks at the heart, and each of these boys, Jesse, trots out for Samuel, the great prophet, and he says, oh, that this would become the king. And each time he does this, Samuel is told by the Lord, that's not the boy. Think about what is going on in this house. Jesse does not think David is worthy of presenting. So, David quite clearly has very significant father issues in his life. I don't think it's reading into the text to take away from that experience. Jesse didn't think David was worth presenting. He was out taking care of the sheep. Now, just for the record, taking care of the sheep's the worst chore you can have. Like Joseph, his brothers seemed to despise him. In the very next chapter, when he goes and meets with the brothers who are there at the place where Goliath was contesting against the armies of Israel, he comes and Eliab, has these, his brother, has these words of poison against David. He says, I know why you've come. You've come for an evil purpose. In, in this sense, he's very much like Joseph, isn't he? Joseph was... was uh, loved by his father, and yet his brothers hated him and intended to murder him and instead just sold him into slavery. As soon as David defeated Goliath, trusting in God's promises, obeying God, being full of zeal for the Lord, as soon as this happens, David then begins to have to run for his life. Saul is filled with jealousy and rage. He hears some songs where the people are singing, David is slain as 10,000s and Saul is thousands. And Saul is enraged. And he starts to hunt David like an animal. At one point, it says in 1 Samuel, Saul wanted to pin him to the wall with a spear. Think about that. I've, you have, I have never been in a scenario like that. I, I don't know you perfectly, so maybe you have. But I know I have never been hunted by a king of a nation. In the midst of learning that Saul's threat was then over, he hears in the same moment that his bosom friend, Jonathan, Saul's son, had also been killed. Think of the tumult in your heart as you hear the threat on your life is ended. They put out a warrant for your death, that's gone. Your best friend was killed in the same moment. Rejoicing, in a sense, maybe, and also, Great grief. And yet in the very next chapter, David is writing this song about how the glory of Israel had just been slain. He loved Saul even while Saul was hating him. He mourns Saul's death even though Saul was enraged with him. The point is that David, if we read Psalm 23 and we hear, he leads me beside the still waters, and then we go and read David's life, they don't reconcile at all, or they don't at least seem to reconcile. Beyond this, we don't have time to get into it today, beyond this, through his own sin, David accomplished or merited the death of his son, which he conceived in murder of Uriah. He stole Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, and the Lord said, therefore, the, the son with which Bathsheba has conceived will die. Absalom, another one of his sons, rebels, tries to take the throne and then is killed. And also because of his own greed and pride, he takes a census of the people and God says that was wrong to have done. And therefore he unleashes a plague against Israel for three days. That's David's life. And he writes, he leads me beside quiet waters. still waters. How do we reconcile these things? Is it possible that we are not seeing the point of what David is writing? I think so completely. In the prior psalm, Psalm 22, David writes another psalm about how he is, again, like an animal being hunted by beasts of prey. This psalm, however, is showing David's heart in the midst of great and terrible danger. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The focus here is not on David's ability to trust, but on God's presence with him. David is not boasting in his ability to believe. He is boasting not because I remember or because I well myself up, or I I stir myself up to take hold of you, he says, I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't fear. Why? Because you're with me. He is aware of God's uh, continuing presence in the moment of going through this valley. In fact, the words, for you are with me, have been organized in this psalm in the very exact center. The same number of words go before this phrase as the number of words which come after. That's intentional. David's writing this psalm highlighting, what's the point? God's with me. That's the point. I'm being hunted by Saul. God's with me. I'm living in a cave. God's still with me. I just heard Jonathan died and Saul is dead and the kingdom is now in tumult. God's still with me. This idea that David is is loving the Lord and therefore God is with him is emphasized by the fact that the words, the Lord, show up at the beginning and the end of this psalm. In verse one, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then the final words of this psalm is, in the house of the Lord forever. Those are like large bookends on the beginning and the end of this idea. For David, therefore, God's presence is the beginning of his life. God existed before he did. And also, his existence and presence is also the rear guard. God goes in front of his people and behind his people. He wraps all of David's life in his existence. In this final word picture, then David again highlights God's kingship over his life. The shepherd who leads his flock does not just use a rod and a staff as the tools of the shepherd alone, but interestingly, those are the same tools that a king uses to lead his people. When David says, your rod and your staff comfort me, those are not just shepherding images, those are also kingly images. For David, therefore, God's reign over his life is complete and total. And it doesn't just protect him, it also directs him. It, it surrounds David's entire life. God's words and guidance are therefore not rejected, but are comforting. Once again, the psalm then makes another change. Earlier, he was saying, the Lord, and then he begins to say, you, And now he moves from using shepherding language to the language of someone who provides hospitality. And that that name for someone who provides hospitality is a host. And in the scriptures, this imagery of a host has amazingly profound connotations of what God is doing as David's host. David here sees God as a host providing a meal And protection from evil men. Verse 5 You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Once again, the psalm changes to a different aspect of God's presence and protection. It moves from shepherding language to the language of a host. David here sees God as a host protecting him in the presence of his enemies. Think of it like this you're sitting down at a table, and there is a meal. And on the other side of the glass, bulletproof glass, are armies coming at you. That's what I take from this image. That's what I think of. I'm in this diner downtown and there's gangs outside and they want in. And they are pounding on the glass. That glass is thousands of feet thick because God's protection is complete and total and secure. In this culture hosts were not just expected to provide food and drink, they were expected to provide protection. We we know about this. There's one example in the scriptures when the angels come to visit Lot in Sodom. He says, "Don't stay don't stay in the town square. Come into my house." Now, we don't have time to get into that story, but Lot was doing a righteous thing. Clearly, David is not describing physical food alone. Because he says, you anoint my head with oil, which was hospitality, but then he says, my cup overflows, and then it breaks into and explodes into a greater image. The cup which overflows is not just that he has enough wine to drink, although that's true, he does have enough wine to drink, spiritually speaking, but that wine satisfies for David, therefore, God is not just a protector, but he is the one who satisfies. He doesn't just restore my soul. He enthr- I'm enthralled with who he is. I'm satisfied with who God is for me, not just in protection, but in delight in him. I want to eat at his table, is what I think David is saying in this place. David has feasted in the Lord's house, and therefore he knows that God isn't going to kick him out. We talked about this last week. All those who the Father has given me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of his life, all of the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David lifts his vision beyond immediate circumstances of temptation to fear and temptation to tremble and to run from his enemies. Now he is able, by God's grace, to lift his vision towards the future and see, I'm going to live with God forever. I'm going to be in God's house, and I'm going to be able to eat and drink with him forever. Whereas God's enemies had literally pursued David in the past, remember Saul was chasing him down, now God is causing goodness and mercy to follow him or chase him down no longer will david live in caves but he will live in the house of the lord forever isn't that interesting because at this time if this is a psalm of david as it is a psalm of david the lord's house really wasn't built at this time and so david is seeing something much beyond just the physical reality he's not just going to live in the temple for a long time while he lives in his body he's going to have a home with god forever That's what David is celebrating. God's love for this little lamb will never change. Here is my question. As Christians, therefore, having seen the mercies of God, the sure and steadfast mercies of David being applied in this psalm, how should we as Christians read these psalms? Isn't this psalm ultimately about Jesus Christ? This may sound like a corrective if you've been in our church You've heard me preach dozens of messages on Christ in the Old Testament and seeing and savoring Jesus Christ and understanding his glory and celebrating that. And that's amazing. And, and in no way am I saying that that is wrong. However... If we always just stop at just seeing, in an abstract sense, the glories of Christ and the promises of God for Christ, and we never read ourselves in the context of what I think is Christian reading, then we're short-circuiting ourselves in reading the scriptures. Is it wrong, therefore, to read these verses about us? That's the question I'm wanting to answer And if it is right, if it's not wrong, if it's right to read this psalm as promises to apply to us, how is this any different from the prosperity gospel, the kind of name-it-claim-it theology or teaching that is out there in the world today? And, And indeed, according to Paul, has always been out there since the resurrection. If it's right for us to use this psalm for personal application, how is that different than twisting the word of God just to get the blessings out of the word of God? That's my question. First of all, I will say quite clearly, Christians should read this psalm and indeed the whole of scripture in the light of Christ. In fact, if we read the scriptures and never get to Christ, it is not Christian exposition. It's not Christian reading. If we do not see the glory of Christ on every page, we are still missing things that I think the Lord would want us to see. Nevertheless, we do not stop at just seeing the beauties of Christ and, and sort of have a kind of mental or even abstract notion of his glory. Why? Why? Because Christians are united to Christ and are therefore part of his body. Saint Augustine had a doctrine which he called the totus Christus. And that's Latin for the total or whole Christ. And in that doctrine he rightly taught from the scriptures as the apostles do following their pattern. That when the Bible speaks about Jesus... Now that Jesus has redeemed his people, in some sense, it's also talking about his body because we have been united by faith to him. And we have become, as Ephesians tells us, his body which fills all in all. We're a part of his people. We're united to him by faith. And so, is it right, therefore, to take the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ, and apply them to ourselves? Yes, it is, and indeed I think it is right. Scripture itself teaches us to do this. It makes examples, for example, in Hebrews 11 and then in 12, 1 through 2, it presents testimony after testimony of the patriarchs and kings and the the saints of old who've gone before and have trusted in the Lord's blessing, in the Lord's promise, and then it tells us to imitate their faith or to emulate it or try to do it again in response to God's promises. This psalm, therefore, is solid bedrock for the Christian life. It doesn't just apply to Christ. Christ is not just in this psalm, and I'm excluded from this psalm because I'm in Christ. What this psalm says about Christ, it says about Christ so that I would read it and that I would use it Christians should use these passages and passages like them in prayer and in meditation to get the benefit or to uh, as the puritans would say suck the marrow out of what is there. There is there is gold in these pages and we have the responsibility, the privilege to mine for the gold and to dig for the gold. Whereas the prosperity teaching claims certain promises, interpreting the Bible on a superficial level, Christian reading, truly Christian reading, receives the entire word of God. And it unifies and harmonizes passages of scripture which seem to contradict each other. Why do I bring that up? Because if we read Psalm 23 and we just hear, the Lord is my shepherd, he's going to take me to green pastures, we have nothing to bank on in the midst of terrible circumstances. And we will make shipwreck of our faith because we will think wrongly that God has denied his word. Why do I say that we have to make use of the whole scripture? Because there are wonderfully beautiful promises for the believer of God's protection in the valley of the shadow of death, not over and through and around the valley of the shadow of death. We are promised his presence in it and through it. Romans 8, 35 through 37, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, of sword or sword?" As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Look at the imagery Paul uses. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If God's promises and your theology of how God protects his people does not work in an American and a missions context, then I believe you are, you are building on a bad foundation if you are welling up and storing up for yourselves superficial promises of God's never going to do anything to me that's hard, then I think you are building on a bad foundation. God is giving his people promises. Look at what verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not around them, not not forgetting them, not always circumventing hard things. In them, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. That is the promise for Christians. As we talked about a few weeks ago, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of you they will kill, not a head of your hair will perish. How? Not a head of your hair head, not a hair of your head will perish ultimately, finally, or to the point of shipwreck. Truly Christian reading differs, therefore, from prosperity teaching in that it uses all of Scripture to inform of all of the Christian life. And it sees ultimately the blessing of God on us as blessing for his name's sake. It does not end with us. It has an end in God's glory. In that glorious goal, it always recognizes the grace of Christ's cross and his resurrection for the grounds of our blessing. And again, by blessing, I don't mean mere external, circumstantial blessings. Indeed, this psalm is about Christ, as we're going to see very briefly. But just as in David's place, it's not just in David's place. Remember, sometimes we read the scriptures and we're trying to find how does Christ fit here. What does this passage say about Christ in this way? And we read it and we insert Christ into the human dimension of the story. Okay, the Lord is Christ's shepherd. And that's true. But that's not what I want to focus on today. It's not just true that the Lord is our shepherd, that Jesus Christ is our shepherd. What I want to focus on is Jesus as our host. It is right. Jesus did say of himself And we looked at in Easter of last year how Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep. He lays his life down, as we said two weeks ago. He lays his life down that he might take it up. He sees the wolf coming. He interposes between his flock and the danger. He takes the hit, dies, and is raised to life. He lays his life down that he might take it up again. Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep. He is your good shepherd, but he is not just your good shepherd, he also is your host. When Jesus himself was about to go through the valley of death, he presented a table before his disciples in the presence of his enemy. This is what I think this psalm is highlighting, is that Jesus is not just the one going through the death. He also is taking the place of Yahweh in this psalm as he is Yahweh and he's presenting a table for his disciples who are about to go through that same sort of valley. This is why this passage is chosen for the time of Lent because it's demonstrating the Lord's provision, Christ's provision for his disciples as they themselves are faced with the threat of death. It's interesting As I was reading last night, Peter actually says, he boasts to the Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And Jesus is trying to say to Peter, no, I have to die for you. That's that's what I'm doing for you, Peter. As Christ was in the upper room, he thoroughly loved his disciples in the final hours before his death. And he was deeply concerned for their spiritual safety. Over and over again, once he gets to the high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays and in fact he spends most of his time praying for the disciples. Think about what your savior has done for you in John 17 in showing his heart. You or I, I, I know for a fact if I was being arrested and, and knew that I was dying tomorrow, it would be very difficult for me to pray for anyone but myself. That's the sort of human failure that we have in ourselves Christ is demonstrating the love of God for us that even as he's about to die he's not primarily concerned about himself he's primarily concerned with making a provision setting a table as it were for his people As he is about to die, he not only prays for himself, but he prays for them. And as he is at the meal, at that table, in the midst of his enemy with Judas in the very room, he then sets a table for his disciples. He does this as a symbolic meal. And by a symbolic meal, I think it's a parable of what was about to happen. Jesus knew that none of the disciples, save for John, would see what happened at the cross. And therefore, he presented to them a symbol or a sign of what he was about to do at the cross ultimately. Verse 26 of Matthew 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see how he's setting a table for his disciples? He's about to go and die and he's giving them a meal. He's, he's giving them because he knows of their own failure. They won't be able to see what he does at the cross. He institutes a meal and he says here at this Passover, I'm giving you my body. I told you earlier that you would have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now I've made it plain what I meant. I'm giving my body for you. I'm giving my blood for your forgiveness, that your sins would be covered. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Though the specter of death does indeed pass over Jesus' disciples, and in, in a sense over all of God's people, it doesn't pass over him. Remember, this is the Passover meal. At the Passover meal, Jesus shows himself as the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. His blood, Jesus' blood, was offered up and applied to the lintel over the whole house of God's children. Remember what happened at the Passover. The angel of death sweeps over the land, And over every house that did not have the blood of a lamb applied to the doorpost, the lintel of that house, the angel of death came and killed the firstborn. Jesus, however, is the firstborn of God. As John testified in the baptism of Jesus in John chapter 1, as he pointed to Jesus and testified to the people of Israel, behold, that's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's the lamb who ultimately has to be killed. Now only because of what Christ has done can goodness and mercy follow us forever. We who deserve nothing but contempt have found acceptance by God. Think about that. We do not simply just get forgiveness from sins. We have communion with God. The gospel does not just end in deliverance from hell. It also includes a precious, wonderful knowing and experiencing of God forever. More than that, not only do we have pardon, we have a home with him forever. And here we're gonna close in John 14, one through two, again, in that same upper room, I believe, fulfilling the intended purpose of verse six of this psalm, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Why does David have the confidence to escape the valley of the shadow of death? Because you are with me. That's what Jesus promises for his disciples. Not only will I protect you, not only will you not fall away, but you will be with me. And I will come back to you to bring you where I am. Therefore, seeing that we have a home with Christ forever, let's learn this year as a church, let's learn to take these promises and to meditate on them and use them and interpret them, showing and seeing the glory of Christ and then in that, remembering the gospel that we are not apart from Christ but are united by faith to him and because we are united by faith to him, therefore we take the verses which speak about him and they become precious sure promises for our perseverance in the faith. Father, we thank you so much for David's life and the testimony that he gave of your constant provision. We are so amazed and and caught off guard and, and filled with wonder at what we see in your word. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from Merely just letting our eyes pass over the pages. We know, Lord, that unless you cause us to understand, if you don't open our ears, Lord, we cannot understand. God, we pray that you would teach us how to guard our hearts when we go through these moments of things that are very much like the valley of the shadow of death, that we would not Simply pray for deliverance from the circumstance. Although you are often so kind and so gracious to give us that, you never let us be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. And yet, Lord, in those moments, please help us to cling to the sure and steadfast promises. Help us, Lord, to learn how to fight the fight of faith, that in the moment of temptation, we would escape by wielding the sword that you gave us by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that Jesus Christ might have the first place in our hearts and that we would truly be able to commune with him. we thank you, Lord, especially for this wonderful promise that we will be with you forever. We pray that you would help us, that that would become our chief and greatest joy. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.